0: Good evening, everyone. Broadcasting Live April Fourteenth. Today's quote is from Brahma You Sutra Sutta. Sutta. There once was a Brahmin named Brahmayu, living in Mithila, Mithila. Why does that name sound familiar? Isn't that the, uh, let's see. Yeah, that is, that's the capital, that's where, um, that's the residence of King Janaka, in the Janaka. Uh, Mahajanaka Jataka and the Mahaumagga Jataka, the Mohosada Jataka. Where, where Mitila was? Generally identi- identified with Janakapura. Ah, there is a place called Janakapura. That's interesting. Huh? Probably been through it. Hmm. Janakpur. Hmm. I'll have to look into that. Well, uh, so, Mithila is a famous place. Nothing to do with our quote, though. Still interesting. Uh, So this Brahmin, Brahmayu, sends his student Uttara to go and uh, see the Buddha, right? And what's neat about this Sutta is it gives some details about the Buddha's life, the Buddha's manner that really stick with you. So it talks about the 32 marks of a great man, which, a great being, which are, uh, well, they're all physical. So the the Buddha had a specific physical shape. He was uh, not like an ordinary human being in many different ways. But then it goes on, after the 32 marks, it gets into interesting stuff. And so one of them is the quote that we have today, but there's several here. When he walks, he steps out with the right foot first. He does not extend his foot too far or put it down too near. So when we do walking meditation, we always tell the meditators to walk with the right foot first. Um, and maybe this is a reason for it. It's kind of just there's obviously nothing special about the right foot, although... Seems to be a habit of the Buddha. So every time you walk with the right foot first, you can think, "Well, I'm doing it the way the Buddha did it." Kind of give you some encouragement, make you think of the Buddha. He walks neither too quick nor too too quickly nor too slowly. This is the answer that my teacher gives uh, uh, when when someone asks whether they should do walking meditation quickly or slowly. Not too, should I slow down? Should I do it quickly? Not too quickly, not too slowly. He walks without his knees knocking together. He walks without his ankles knocking together. He walks without raising or lowering his thighs or bringing them together or keeping them apart. When he walks, only the lower part of his body oscillates. And he does not walk with bodily effort. When he turns to look, he does so with his whole body this is called the elephant gaze, or it's one way of interpreting what is called the elephant gaze. The Buddha uh, he he, did, he wouldn't often turn, but when he did, he would turn his whole body like an elephant. Because if an elephant's going to look behind itself, it has to turn all the way around. That's some another particular uh, idiosyncrasy of a Buddha. Uh, and so he did this when he came out of uh, Waisali, I think, three months before, or sometime before he, he, he entered into parinibbana. he turns around and looks at Vaisali and, and says, this is the last time I'm going to see this town. You know, he wasn't ever going to come back. He does not look straight up, he does not look straight down. He does not walk looking about. He looks a plow yoke's length before him. Beyond that, he has unhindered knowledge and vision. So he looks about six feet out. When he goes indoors, he does not raise or lower his body or bend it forward or back. He turns neither too far from the seat nor too near it. He does not lean on the seat with his hand. He does not throw his body onto the seat. So when... When he comes near a seat to sit upon, he turns to sit on it, but he does it. This is a guy uh, having observed the Buddha and relating this back to his teacher, just how incredible the Buddha was, just how impressive he was in in every little meticulous detail. And so it's a unique look. It's, I think, the only place where we really have this much uh, detail about the Buddha. When seated indoors, he does not fidget with his hands, he does not fidget with his feet. He does not sit with his knees crossed, he does not sit with his ankles crossed. He does not sit with his hands holding his hand holding his chin. When seated indoors he is not afraid, he does not shiver and tremble, he is not nervous. Being unafraid, not shivering or trembling or nervous, his hair does not stand up and he is intent on seclusion. Intent on seclusion, even when he is in a crowd when surrounded by people, all he is thinking about is seclusion his his mind is focused on seclusion uh, and and part of the implication is getting out of there as soon as possible he and at one point the Buddha says that he teaches uh, in whatever way he can to get rid of to, to, to make the, the person leave as quickly as possible uh, it, which is curious because you think, well, that's kind of uh, how rude of him to think like that. But it's really kind of uh, special to think of, you know, um, because you can't, you know, it's, it's not about uh, dismissing people. It's about working out your karma with them. If someone comes to you, there's some kind of relationship there. And it's interesting how you find if you reject people, if you just reject them outright, they're going to come back. There's you're, you're building up karma with them, and they will come back. If not in this life, in the next, but usually in this life they'll come back, and you'll re- there'll still be that tension. But to really get rid of someone, you have to work everything out so that you're, you're free from uh, that karma, you know, the debt, the debt or the. Uh, Concerns of so people come and accuse you, or come and attack you, or even come and ask you questions. question. You, if you don't satisfy them, there's tension there. So you have to do your do your part. Sometimes, if someone's yelling at you, you don't have to appease them. Sometimes, like the Buddha said, you you get angry at me, I don't get angry at you. You get to keep the anger. Just like you bring me a gift, I don't take the gift. But uh, anyway, the, the, it's kind of a curious, not how people would think of someone like the Buddha. They think, oh, yes, he's so compassionate and he wants to help people. Not really. He would help people in, in whatever way he can to end it, to uh, to be free from that burden or the, the interaction. Because it's all about being, in, it's all about working yourself to be free if you want to teach people how to be free you have to be free yourself so that one if you don't put your own freedom first you're not teaching other people to be free you're teaching other people to be trapped You, you yourself have to be free to be able to teach it so always concerned with seclusion when he receives water, he does not raise. It talks about water. Like every little thing, he washes the bowl out without making a splashing noise and so on. You should read through us. It's Majima Nikaya number 91. <laughs> when he receives rice, Uh, he turns, he he does not exceed the right amount of sauce in the mouthful, he turns the mouthful over two or three times in his mouth and then swallows it and no rice kernel enters his body unchewed and no rice kernel remains in his mouth so every single rice kernel is chewed before it goes down his throat and no rice kernel remains in his mouth then he takes another mouthful so not even a single rice kernel is left before he goes for the next thing he takes his food experiencing the taste though not experiencing greed for the taste i wonder how this guy knew all this he must have been very observant or perhaps this has been embellished or extrapolated the food he takes has eight factors it is neither for amusement nor for intoxication nor for the sake of physical beauty and attractiveness but only for the endurance and continuation of his body for the ending of discomfort the assisting the holy life he considers thus shall I terminate old feelings without arousing new feelings and I shall be healthy and blameless and live in comfort this is actually the reflection that we make before we eat and Bhikkhu Bodhi says the same this is the standard reflection of the proper use of alms food pinda pātang <speaking> neva navāya namadāya Titiyas, Panayavi Hing, Suparati, Brahmacharya Nukahaya, Iti Puranancha Vedanang, Padihankami, Noancha Vedanang, Napadi Sami, Yatrajame, Bavisati, and Vachata, Napasu, and Vachata, Japasu, Viharuchati. We say that uh, before we eat, usually, as a reflection. So he probably heard the Buddha say that, you know, this would be how the Buddha eats. And after he's eaten, detail, detail about eating. He walks neither to fast or too fast nor too slow. His robe is worn neither too high nor too low. Uh, he washes his feet, he sits mindfully, his mindset on welfare. On the his own welfare, on the welfare of others, on the welfare of both, even on the welfare of the whole world. When he is and here's the quote that we have today. When he has gone to the monastery, he teaches the Dhamma to an audience. He neither flatters nor berates his audience. He instructs, urges, and encourages it. It would talk purely on the Dhamma. No, this isn't the quote. Huh. I don't think the quote is in this sutta, is it? I think it's got the wrong (laughs) sutta. Oh, yeah, no, this is it. Yeah, right? The speech has, let me see, so I quote this. Yeah, it has eight qualities. Okay, yeah, that's just this one. He neither flatters nor berates the audience. He instructs, urges, rouses and encourages it with talk purely on the Dhamma. The speech that issues from his mouth has eight qualities. It is distinct, intelligible, melodious, audible, ringing, euphonious, deep and sonorous. But while his voice is intelligible as far as the audience extends, his speech does not issue out beyond the audience. Pen kind of magical. When the people have been instructed, urged, roused, and gladdened by him, they rise from their seats and depart, looking only at him and concerned with nothing else. That's an inspiring quote. I mean, this whole sutta has, this sutta has a lot about uh, inspiration rather than um, instruction. And a lot of it is about the Buddha himself and about his great qualities and uh, how impressive he was as, a, as a, uh, a sort of a, an aid to help us think and, and appreciate who the Buddha actually was. It's useful in that way. It's impressive. Having an impressive role model, example, this is, you know, there's there, there's a definite benefit to it. And so that's what we use Siddhas like this for. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, in the end, the Buddha does come and teach some things. Let me see. What does he actually get around to teaching? Here we go. He asks the Buddha some questions. How does one become a Brahman and how does one attain knowledge? Let's see if we can find the Pali. Katangku. Brahmano Hoti, Katang Bhavati, Vedago, Tevi Jo Bo Katang Hoti, Soti Yo Kinti Wuchati, Arahang Bo Katang Hoti, Katang Bhavati, Kevadi, Munichabo Katang Hoti, Budho Kinti Bhuchati. A lot of questions. even in the buddhist time they had all sorts of questions how does one become a brahman how does one become vedagu one who has gone to vedas to knowledge wisdom devinja how does one become triple knowledge how is one called a muni scholar a sage how does one become an arahant how does one attain completeness what's that bhavati kevali yeah Mm -hmm full accomplishment how is one a silent sage oh no sorry the first one wasn't Muni it was Soti which is a, a learned man and Muni is uh, huh? mm. how is one a Muni how is one, as, how is one called a Buddha so here is the Buddha's teaching. Let's find the teaching. Pubheni vasanyo vedi Sugga payanca pasati Atto jati kayang patto vosito muni One who knows their past lives, who sees heaven and hell, who has attained the ending of birth one who is is accomplished in higher knowledge such a person is a muni they know the purification of mind or the pure mind Hmm. they know the pure mind sabaso, free from raga entirely altogether, altogether free from raga from passion and desire. Bahina jati marano brahmachari charyasa kevali. One is complete who has abandoned birth and death. through the holy life is it through the holy life? oh I see one who has abandoned birth and death one who has uh, completed the holy life become complete come to the completion of the holy life paragu sabbha dhamma nang one who has gone to the farther shore to the, the final ultimate knowledge, paragu means go, literally one who has gone to the other shore but it's a word the Buddha uses often in, in a metaphorical sense of one who has gone to the end who has seen through to completion who has come to the end of all dhammas or who has come to know and come to be complete in regards to all dhammas then, with us, such a person is called the Buddha. And then the Buddha gave him more instruction, which is. Uh, then he gave the Anupubikatha, which we call the anupubikatha. Teaching in order, so he taught him about dana, about charity, sila, morality, sangha, about heaven, kama nang adinawang, and the disadvantages, the degradation, and the defilement, impurity of, of sensuality. Ni kamme ani sang sang the benefits of renunciation. The Medjimindakaya is really pretty awesome. It's got 152 suttas on all sorts of subjects. So you find all sorts of gems about all sorts of things. Anyway, there's some dhamma for this evening. Uh, So... We have two meditators and they both finished today. Did really well. I can certify both of them as having finished the course, which is awesome. Not certified, but I can vouch for them having done a really good job in their course. And and I finished two exams, so about Buddhism this morning Buddhism in East Asia the three questions the neat thing about it our professor is uh, I think he's a practicing Buddhist and uh, he was conscious of the amount of stress that people have so he he gave us the exam in advance Uh, he did the same with the midterm but he gave us the final exam to prepare in advance so it was fairly stress-free uh, from you know for most of the class as far as worrying about what's going to be on it or about any surprises or about what to study it was quite clear what you had to study it's just a matter of putting in the time and so I wrote about practice and belief the first the first section was a short answer so it was a shorter answer short essay about practice versus belief Because in East Asia, um, in in most religion, of course, the the most uh, obvious relationship between belief and practice is how our belief informs our practices, right? This is fairly standard. But I looked at the other ways as well. Right? I mentioned the other, how it's possible for one's practice to influence one's beliefs in the sense that one can be forced into certain practices or, or have influences leading one to practice in other ways. For example, the state in China and in Korea and Japan um, had a pretty heavy hand uh, on Buddhist practitioners and, and monks and, and teachers and so on. And uh, so they were often compelled to uh, practice in certain ways and this would have influenced people's beliefs. Uh, Also practices, worldly practices, or people's desires and and attachments and views and and egos and so on, would have affected people's belief and and how they interpreted the Dhamma. Um, Another way of of looking at these two is how belief and practice can can sometimes conflict. We've got this interesting thing, Pure Land Buddhism is really weird like uh, i'm not really impressed but uh here's the idea with pureland see there was this guy genshin genshin who said that reciting the buddha's name and in fact not our buddha but another buddha was uh was was the best practice okay so he said there's all these other practices but reciting the name amitabha is the best practice Okay, so this is his idea. A fo- the next guy who came along was named Honan. And Honan said, Honen privately, he didn't go public with it in the beginning, um, but he wrote a book in private that said that practice is useless. And the only thing that's, that's effective is reciting the Buddha's name. Okay, so he's got another step the next guy who came along uh, Shinran went even farther if you read about these guys it's like oh dear they went further and further it was like interpretation of interpretation so Shinran says not only is uh, practice is not just useless practice is actually harmful why is practice harmful and he said his quote was that uh, a good person, a good person will get, uh, let me see, even a good, even a good person can get into, no it's not the quote, but it, was, it, it twisted it, he said, it was basically saying that evil people have an easier time getting to the pure land than good people. And why is that? Because good people, practice uh, buddhism and by practicing buddhism they're showing that they don't have faith in amitabha right because otherwise why would you practice if, if you had perfect faith in amitabha you're just like well I'll wait for amitabha to save me amitabha will take me to the pure Land. so um his idea was that evil people because they don't practice <laughs> because really scary stuff actually I mean this is not this is a quote of his and it's really not not Buddhism as I understand it so we had a little bit we've had some debates about this and in class right before the exam I said to one of the students I said you know uh, I said this really isn't Buddhism anymore and she kind of smiled and I said I know I mean what I have to say is it's a different type of Buddhism and, and she kind of smiled again and we're like because we understand that. You, you, you know, you, it's like the no true Scotsman fallacy. If you ever look up the no true Scotsman fallacy, you can't just say someone's not a Buddhist if they claim to be Buddhist. But I said, but here's the thing, Buddhism, if, if a religion arises, and when it arises it, it's, its core doctrine is X, and then later a new, a new doctrine arises, not X, if the new doctrine takes not X, how can you call it the religion, the same religion, right? It's like, okay, you can adapt and reinterpret things, but if something is X, and then another, you know, this is very much not X, Pure Land Buddhism. Anyway, um, so I had to talk about these kinds of things. The second, the two longer questions, two longer essays were about decline and the individual versus the state. So, decline is, um, I mean, again, these are much more related to East Asian Buddhism than Buddhism as we practice it or I practice it. So, it, again, it's kind of scholarly um, as opposed to practical. Anyway, I talked about decline and, and how decline or decline of the dhamma. It's interesting to ask whether the dhamma is actually considered to be declining, um, or, or, or you know what's m- more understood to be the ca- understood to be the case is uh, people's ability to practice the dhamma. The dhamma doesn't change right? the dhamma, but you know, when when uh, um, exception is the 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 fact that the dhamma becomes corrupt you see because we don't really know exactly what the buddha taught we claim that in theravada we have the original teachings you know we may not but at any rate supposing even that we did well you know even those teachings are reinterpreted and are mixed with new teachings and replaced by new teachings and that kind of thing uh, so, this is how the Dhamma becomes corrupted. And the decline of the Dhamma is when people stop paying attention to the deep teachings and they promote uh, surface teachings like, well, I would say, like the Lotus Sutra. Or even worse, there are sutras like the Sutra of Humane Kings, the Golden Light Sutra, that are very, very worldly and much more about uh, empire building and state building than anything which is what I got into the second, in the, f- the final question about individual versus state. Uh, individuals tend to affect religion in unpredictable ways, idiosyncratic. You know, they, they come up with their own ideas and um, they create uh, innovation. Whereas the state, on the other hand, is all about stifling and innovation, systematizing, Uh, controlling, manipulating, using for their own purposes. Uh, So they tend to be more predictable. Anyway, so that was uh, my second exam. Um, Yeah, I did really well on both exams. Neither one was that difficult, as it turns out. Um, On Sunday we had uh, this storytelling thing, I don't think I've talked about that yet. It went really well. I told the story. I think I went way over time. <laughs> I think we all kind of went way over time. I was My story was quite short, so I thought, oh, I'll have to talk about it. And I think I ended up talking too long. But it was really well appreciated. The First Nations guy said, what do you say, good words? <laughs> and sat back down. It's quite a character. And uh, tomorrow I'm off to New York, so I actually should probably go and start preparing for my trip. But uh, I'll be gone for nine days. I would think I'll probably do as long as they have internet, I'll do some audio broadcasts. So I'll try my best, depending on the time. I don't. I think my schedule is mostly afternoon stuff. I'm not even. And you know, I'm kind of taking it day by day, of course, but. I should look at the New York schedule. As long as I'm not busy, I'll I'll try to broadcast every night, just audio. So you can find the audio here at meditation.sarimangalo.org. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Have a good night and uh, be well.